Come on. Hello, dear listener. Before we get into today's show, quick ask. If you find value in today's show or you've gotten value out of a previous show, please leave us a quick five-star review. Be super grateful. Thanks a lot. The strong, the powerful Larry Swedro has returned to Money Savage. Welcome back, Larry. My pleasure to be back, George. Larry is the Chief Research Officer at Buckingham Wealth Partners, spending his time educating investors on the benefits of evidence-based investing. He is an author many times over. He is a sought-after speaker, an expert, and again, a returning guest on the Money Savage podcast. We're excited to have you back on. Larry, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Okay. Uh, well, I'm a, a born New Yorker, if you uh, haven't uh, already <laughs> figured that out. Uh, they say you could take the boy out of the Bronx, but not the Bronx out of the boy. So spent my first 25 years in New York. I have an undergraduate degree from Bernard Baruch College in finance and investing, and then a MBA from NYU in finance and investing. Spent much of my early career in the investment banking world. I'm working for major corporations, managing all kinds of financial risk. I uh, advise some of the largest companies in the world. I'm managing interest rate risk, foreign exchange risk, even help create some of those first uh, weapons of mass financial destruction <laughs> called derivatives, interest rate swaps and collars and floors and things like that. And then I ran uh, a foreign exchange trading room uh, and an offshore bank for Citicorp and uh, left to join Prudential Mortgage, where I was the chief credit officer and also responsible for our interest rate risks uh, there as well. And then for the last 25 years or so, I've been the chief research officer for Buckingham Wealth Partners now. Uh, today, we're almost a $20 billion RIA with offices in about 40 cities. Uh, and we're also what's called the TAMP, or a turnkey asset management provider to hundreds uh, of other advisors and advisory firms all around the country. So I act as their, in effect, their director of research, helping them determine their investment strategies and policies. What a career, sir, I tell you. Is there something that you look back on and, and well, I'm sure that there's a million things. What, what are you, what, which, which stage, what, what, what action are you really most proud of as, 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 as you look back on that body of work you just talked about? Well, uh, that's probably, it's hard uh, yeah. to come up with one thing, I think, but uh, I got lucky in my career, uh, being in the right spot in the right time. I helped build uh, several companies, uh, including Prudential Home Mortgage. We have been, I did take a big pay cut to leave Citicorp to take that opportunity to try to turn around uh, what was a failing company. Uh, but we thought it had uh, a great idea, which was doing mortgages by mail hmm. uh, instead of having to go into uh, the people's offices. Uh, so that was well before the Internet, of course. Uh, 
And uh, we turned that around 10 years later. Um, we sold the company for over a billion dollars. Uh, and I was going to retire and go and teach. That's something I had always wanted to do. In fact, I was going for my PhD uh, at NYU uh, when New York City just got too dangerous to ride the subways at night. Hmm. Uh, and so, unfortunately, I never finished my PhD. Uh, but this gave me, but uh, I had guest lectured at Stanford and some other colleges, and I really enjoyed teaching. So uh, I was going to go look for a job uh, teaching at one of the local colleges, uh, finance. Uh, and friends of mine had just started an investment advisory firm. They were great financial planners doing estate tax type work. Uh, and they wanted to get into the investment business, but they didn't have any of the investment experience and the risk management experience. So they told me what they were doing, and I thought, gee, what a great fit. I could get a chance to teach and educate and write uh, without any of the bureaucracy <laughs> of, yeah. uh, of a college uh, and reach a lot more people. Uh, and so we uh, came to terms, and I went to work for them. And I've had a chance to help thousands of people all over the world, many of whom I will never meet. I answer every email from people literally all over the world asking for advice. People have read my books and my columns. And the greatest reward I think I get is from those people thanking me for helping them get their finances right and improve uh, their overall financial knowledge, wisdom, and ability to reach their goals. So, well, that's an incredible impact. So, I'm certainly grateful for all of your work, and you know, at, at the heart of it, you know, teaching people and being able to help people understand uh, the complexities of money and the financial system is obviously of, ex of incredible value. I mean, yeah. And what's really sad, and I've written this in my books, uh, one of the great tragedies in this country is despite the importance of money, uh, I would rank money for most people, probably one of the three or four most important things. It's of course not money itself, but what it can do for you, giving you a secure retirement, health care house to live in, comforts, and then the luxuries uh, and that life can provide. Uh, but unless you, uh, you know, so after your family and your health, uh, and for some people maybe their religion, money is right up there. Uh, and yet our education system totally fails the public because unless you get an MBA in finance, it's highly likely you've never taken a single course in capital markets theory or asset pricing theory. And so where do you get your investment knowledge from? Unless you're really dedicated to reading books like mine and those of people like John Bogle uh, and William Bernstein, uh, you get your advice from Wall Street and the media who wants you to play what we call the loser's game of trying to pick stocks and time the market and pay big fees to active managers who claim that they're likely to outperform on a risk-adjusted basis when the evidence overwhelmingly says the odds of doing so are so poor it's not prudent to try. And that was, I guess, probably the key 
the, 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 the premise of The Incredible Shrinking Alpha that you wrote some years ago and you've now updated it it's 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 the newest edition has 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 come out yeah well the 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 good news is and i feel proud that i played a i hope somewhat significant role in this trend uh but 25 years ago it was only about one percent of individuals money was invested passively and about 10 percent of all assets so institutions were more aware of the loser's game that active management is. And by loser's game, I mean it's not the people playing it are losers, but it's a loser's game like the crap tables in Las Vegas. You have a chance to win, but the odds of doing so are so poor you shouldn't try unless you're willing to lose money for the entertainment value. Uh, so the surest way to win a loser's game is don't play. And in investing, it means investing in things like index funds instead of active funds. And the and big institutional investors like pension plans, endowments, were more aware of the evidence. So they were you know, more heavily in indexing, but still a vast majority of their money was active. Well, today, you're about 50% of the market overall is indexing with more heavily weighted, again, by the institutions. Uh, individuals are still catching up, but I think the numbers are something like maybe one third or maybe a bit more now of individual money is passive. So we still have a way to go, but that's a big change from virtually nothing to maybe one third or 40% of individual money uh, there. Uh, and writing my books, I've now written 18 on investing, including the Shrinking Alpha, which presents the evidence and the logic on why active management is actually becoming harder and harder, despite the claims that active management uh, makes that as indexing increases, it'll become easier to win the game. And I show the evidence uh, and explain why the exact opposite is more likely to be true. And there you go. And I know that, that this I, is, 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 would you refer to as evidence-based investing? It's not an idea. It's, 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 it's a practice, but it's hard to do, which is why I, I imagine the industry has been able to, to just say, well, no, you know, you, you, you can outperform the market, but you comb through, you, you crunch the numbers, you, you, you pour through the data to say, okay, you know, that's all fine and well, but here's what's actually taking place. Yeah. The evidence shows, and regularly, all your listeners have to do is read the very well done, what are called SPIVA reports put out by Standard & Poor's. Uh, they report regularly on the percentage of active managers outperforming their benchmarks uh, and regularly over 5, 10, 15 year periods, 80, 90 percent plus of active managers underperform even before considering taxes. And for taxable investors, taxes are the single greatest expense typically of active management far higher typically than the expense ratio and the trading costs even. Uh, so uh, the, it's not 10 or 20% that are outperforming, it's probably half or less than that. 
what the data also shows is the few that win tend to win by small amounts. Let's just pick a number, say 50 basis points they outperform by. But the ones that lose, lose on average by, say, one and a half percent. So if you put it on a risk adjusted basis, since far more lose than win, you know, uh, the odds of you winning uh, become, you know, almost insurmountable uh, to the extent that no rational person really examining the data should be playing that game. Uh, so that's the problem. And 20 years ago, when I wrote, my, and actually it's now 22, when I wrote my first book, Charles Ellis wrote his more famous book, uh, Winning the Losers Game. He showed the evidence that about 20% of active managers were outperforming on a risk-adjusted basis pre-tax. So that's a loser's game, 80% lose, 20% win. And there was no evidence that anyone could identify those 20% ahead of time, which is the key issue. Today, uh, those numbers, and that's what we present in the book, they're down to about 2% or less so it's gone from 20% winning pre-tax on a statistically significant basis to 2% and fewer outperform than are randomly expected. So that's telling us there's no persistence in performance either. Uh, so there's no way to identify those winners ahead of time that's reliable. Uh, so we think it's better to focus on managing risks and not trying to outperform the market. I appreciate that. What are your thoughts on 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 platforms like Robinhood? Yeah, I think sadly uh, they're incredibly dangerous because naive investors, uh, retail money is called dumb money for a reason. Uh, the, they encourage people in this belief that you can beat the market uh, and follow some smart investors advice. The research uh, which I've presented in many of my books, including investment mistakes even smart people make, where I outline 77 common mistakes that most investors make. The research shows the following. The stocks that individual investors buy on average go on to underperform after they buy them, and the stocks they sell go on to outperform (laughs) after they sell them. Now, since beating the market is a zero-sum game, if the stocks I sell go on to outperform, somebody's on the other side. And this is what most individuals never consider, which is incredibly foolish, is if you're buying a stock, who's on the other side that's selling and ask why are they selling? Well, today, over 90% of the trading is typically done by big institutional investors who hire all of them, world-class mathematicians, scientists, PhDs in nuclear physics now and aeronautics running, have access to all the databases Uh, and information, they're likely to have far more knowledge than you do about any individual stock. And if they're uh, a seller and you're a buyer, 
and only one of you could be right and does, will that stock outperform the market, who is it more likely to be right? Well, the evidence says, yes, it's more likely to be the institution. And so why are you playing a game? It's like me trying to play tennis. I'm a good weekend player. Uh, you know, I'm considered a, a high level three five. Uh, but uh, if I play Roger Federer, I'm likely never win a point. Mm. Uh, but and that's the game you're playing against. You're playing against people with a lot more skill, knowledge, training than you. Why do you think you're likely to win? And now the problem is that today, since now 90% of trading is done by big institutions, when one hedge fund is selling, the likely buyer might be Warren Buffett or JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs or another hedge fund, and only one of them can be right. Well, that's why there's just not enough victims anymore to exploit. It's not like 1950s or 60s when 90% of the trading was done, done by dumb retail money and Warren Buffett could exploit you and me because he knew a lot more uh, and so could the other professionals. But that era is long gone. So I just want to encourage your listeners to think about whenever they're trading, whether it's buying or selling, they should ask, who's the sucker at the poker table? You are the person who's on the other side of the trade. And since it's highly likely to be a big institution, you're likely the sucker, only you don't know it. Right. right. I think that's well said. Well, Larry, while I've got you on the uh, call here, I am not, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, smart enough to try to figure out what the impact long-term is of the debt that, 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 that we've just accrued through the form of stimulus and PPP and, and, and all these other things due to coronavirus. Mm-hmm. What, are, are, are you concerned about it? Yeah, well, first, just as a little background, uh, I am a trained economist. Uh, I did economic forecasting and sold economic forecasts when I was at Citicorp. Uh, so I have a good background in, the, in this area, and I have access to you know, many of the leading financial economists in the country. So I think I can bring some value to the conversation. What the research shows is that debt levels matter. Uh, now, they don't matter too much until you reach a certain point. In other words, if you know my income is 100,000 a year and I borrow 10 or $20,000, I can easily pay that off. But if my debt gets up to 100,000, uh, you know, now it becomes more of a problem. Uh, so you have a debt to GNP ratio, which measures how much the size of the economy is and therefore your ability to generate income to pay off that debt. When you get to around 100%, that becomes, it appears, to be uh, a barrier of which uh, a hurdle is raised that it becomes hard to outgrow uh, and repay the debt. First of all, people might uh, say you can't repay the debt uh, or we're more concerned about your paying the debt and they will demand a bigger 
uh, risk premium for taking that credit risk. So Chinese uh, investors and investors all over the world, as well as U.S. citizens, might become concerned at some point and raise their the spread they'll demand uh, uh, to lend money to the U.S. Uh, and if those spreads go up, then it's hard for the economy to grow because you're suppressing economic activity by high real rates. This is what happened to Greece, of course, and many other countries that, that actually have defaulted in the past. When you get your debt to GDP much above 100%, it's a problem. Now, we uh, fortunately, uh, for example, World War II, we went into that with a low debt to GDP ratio. We went up above 100%, but then we enacted supply side economic tax cuts, allowed the economy to grow. We kept government spending down and we drove that number way down over time. We actually, people at the end of the 1990s were worried there would be no government debt left as shocking as that now seems. Wow. And in 20 years, we've blown away all of that gift that, that we were given of having almost no debt. Well, we are now at about 100%. Now, if you think about it, if the GNP grows 3% and you have 3% interest rates, well, now you, you, know, uh, you can afford to pay your debt. But if the the economy is only growing 1% and you're paying 3% or 4 or 5 then you can't pay that debt and the debt to GDP ratio will keep going up and up and up until at some point people stop lending to you likely. Uh, and uh, that's where we're headed now because the deficit is, was massive at about a trillion dollars which was about 5% of our GNP in a full employed economy. This year, the deficit is obviously going to be way over that. The debt to GDP ratio, you know, will, could jump 20% in one year now. And so we've got some severe problems. Uh, I don't care who's president. It's not likely that number is going to shrink. I think it would get much worse uh, under uh, a Biden pre presidency uh, because of the big spending plans, but it'll be bad in either case. So I am worried about it. And here's the other thing. So one problem is you have this big debt. One way out of it is to print money. Then you get hyperinflation maybe, and that destroys your economy as every country in the world that's lived through that has found. The other side of it is that you get this big debt and here's what happens. Citizens of the country say, man, uh, I was counting on Social Security and Medicare and the government uh, to help uh, and now they've got this big debt. I'm worried about not getting my Social Security. In fact, in the U.S. we know in about 14 years it'll only be able to pay out about 75%. Uh, so people start to save more, which is very rational. This is what's happened in Japan. You have an aging population living longer. They're worried about the government's ability to pay because they borrowed so much. Their debt to GDP is over 250%. And 
if everybody's saving, then economic growth suffers and the debt to GDP ratio keeps getting worse. Uh, and you get no growth in the economy. And you could get this vicious circle uh, problem. So I think this is definitely an issue uh, that it can likely suppress growth, uh, act as a dampener uh, you know, under either presidency. And people are going to have to build that into their plans, expecting lower returns uh, quite possibly from both stocks and bonds because of that. And there it is. And the <laughs> I don't have a clear crystal ball. Yeah. I'm not saying it will happen, but I uh. think certainly those are risks that every investor should be considering and building into their plans as one possible, uh, if not likely, outcome. Got it. Well, perfect. Well, I appreciate it, Larry. I appreciate uh, appreciate your work and your thoughts, and I appreciate the uh, the second edition of the Incredible Shrinking Alpha coming out. Um, where can Savage Nation learn more about you? Where can they get a copy of your books? All that good stuff. Yeah. Well, first, the easiest thing is to follow me at Twitter because uh, I write for four different websites. Uh, Seeking Alpha, Alpha Architect, Advisor Perspectives, and Evidence-Based Investor. So the easiest thing to do is just follow me on Twitter. Whenever I post an article, I, you know, I tweet it out. Uh, so that's one way. Um, uh, you can also check out all of my books on Amazon, of course. Uh, and uh, one of the benefits of reading my books is I'm always happy to answer uh, questions from readers. My email address is in all of my books, and I'm, I never go to bed at night without at least checking emails and answering them. Uh, maybe don't have time today, but I'll get back to you as soon as possible. But I do answer every email. And like I said, one of the great pleasures for me is the thank yous that I get all the time from people for helping them, people who I will never see, never know. Uh, uh, but uh, that's the great gift of giving. The giver receives much more than the receiver. I love it. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Larry your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Follow Larry on Twitter and pick up a copy of one of his many, many, many books, on Amazon or wherever you buy books and uh, reach out. Take take advantage of uh, the fact that he will respond. Thanks yeah, again, Larry. One last uh, yeah. comment. Uh, the book that preceded this one uh, is one I would highly recommend to all of your listeners, uh, Your Complete Guide to a Successful and Secure Retirement. It's the most complete book, I think, by far on retirement planning because there are good books on estate planning, on Social Security, uh, and in even investing. Uh, but there are no books that cover the 20 areas that we discuss uh, in our book. And it walks through the winning investment strategy, as well as helping planning a life in retirement, issues like Medicare, when to take Social Security, estate planning, preparing your heirs, elder abuse, whole chapter on separate issues that women face, making it more difficult typically for them. 
Uh, so I'd highly recommend that book. And again, as we said, I'm always happy to answer questions. I love it. Well, thank you again, Larry. My pleasure. Glad to come back anytime, George. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. Spending too much time on social? Is your daily screen time over two hours? Are you a little bit overweight? Not saving enough money? Any or all of these are familiar. Strive could be for you. The Strive two-week online boot camp will help you to detox your mind, body, and money, getting you on your way to a happier, healthier, wealthier, and more confident life. Go to strivedetox.com, S-T-R-I-V-E-D-E-T-O-X.com, and get your mind, body, and money right.